If you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 19. Following the reading of Scripture, we'll sing together the Gloria Patri printed for you in your uh, bulletin. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven." And God will add his blessing to this reading of his word. Amen. We come to the last portion of this middle section of the Heidelberg Catechism on how we may be delivered from our sin and misery. And we've been reflecting on some of the gifts that God has given to his church and the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And today is focusing on the particular issue, how is it that the grace for the deliverance from the sin and misery that we have experienced by nature, how is it that that's administered or given out by the church, dispensed by the church? And how are are believers admitted by grace into this blessing and how are unbelievers uh, kept out or prevented from getting in, receiving those blessings. And the keys of the kingdom are what is the focus of attention. And they're first brought up in scripture uh, in this statement of Jesus Christ in the context of Peter's great confession, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, in the context of Jesus making the announcement I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against this. He gives to Peter and the other apostles uh, the keys of the kingdom. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so the keys of the kingdom are that which opens the gates to the kingdom of heaven and closes them to the ungodly and the unbelieving. Uh, Zacharias Ursinus, who authored this catechism, he uh, describes it, he says, it is called the power of the keys from a metaphor or form of speech borrowed from stewards to whom are delivered the keys of the house in which they are stewards. The keys signify the office of the steward. And the church is the house of the living God and the ministers of the church are the stewards of God. 
So the elders of the church, the officers of the church, the ministers of the church, don't take any of this uh, to themselves as though it comes from them. It's given to them by God through Christ to them, but it's, it's a stewardship they exercise that's very, very important. Uh, and these keys are critical for not only maintaining and guarding the gospel, but for um, extending the gospel in the kingdom. <clears throat> so what do the keys do? You already know from the first question and answer, the two keys that we're going to look at are preaching and church discipline. But what do the keys do? <clears throat> they Whatever they bind on earth are bound in heaven. Whatever they loose on earth, they loose in heaven. They bind and loose in relation to the kingdom of heaven. Uh, If you're still in Matthew, or even if you're not, turn to Matthew 18, uh, verse 18. Matthew 18, 18. Uh, Here Jesus repeats this point. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And um, then one other passage I want to take you to is John chapter 20. John 20, verse 23. He's commissioning the disciples in the upper room. John chapter 20, verse 23. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So it's not as though we take control of the decrees of God and that we tell God what he's going to do. That's not the point in whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven or whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. But the The focus and the point of that is as we are faithful in using the keys of the kingdom, then our actions connect with the uh, decrees and plan and providence of Almighty God. We're carrying out his divine will. And what he has decreed, we are carrying out. The gift of these keys are from the Lord. Herman Huxema, in his One of his messages on these keys uh, helps us remind us of this point that we receive these from Christ. He says, only Christ has the keys. They're from him. Uh, But he goes on, but it pleases him to exercise that power of the keys through men, through the apostles and through the church, which is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And then he goes on to the first Uh, Key And therefore, through the preaching, Christ speaks his own efficacious and living word. And it is only because it pleases Christ to speak his own word that the preaching becomes effective as a key power. So our use of the keys gives us no glory and no authority and no honor and power. But as we exercise the keys according to the power and glory and gift of Christ... They become effective in opening the kingdom of heaven or closing it. Uh, we, um, we know that not everyone will make that choice. 
Uh, Jesus says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to do it. Well, what are the keys? The first key is preaching. Uh, By the open proclamation of the gospel throughout the world, in every place, to every person, we have the, the key of opening, the key of loosing the doors, loosing the bondage to sin, opening the gates to allow them uh, to, for many to come in. Now, we understand that no man can come to Jesus except the Father draw him. But along with that promise of Christ, he also gives the promise that whoever comes to him, he will not drive away. And so the, the key of the kingdom in the preaching of the gospel is to open and close. And we're, it's Christ that we're listening to in preaching. So turn to Luke chapter 10. Uh, Luke, Luke, Luke chapter 10, verse 16. And here he's speaking to the disciples as he had sent them out. In Luke ten sixteen, he says, He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. When the, the minister's preaching, when a sermon's being preached and the declaration of the gospel is being made, it's not the minister you're listening to primarily or not, not to be what you're listening to. It's Christ who is speaking. It's the King of kings and the Lord of lords who's speaking through the, the word of God to you. And you need to listen. Uh, you need to hear, not because the minister is worthy, but Christ is worthy. And I know that some sermons are not so easy to listen to. Uh, Sometimes it can be a challenge. Uh, Tommy Robinson is here today. He didn't know I was going to say this, although I had planned to say it. Um, He told me one time, he said, you know, I don't think there's ever been a sermon that I listened to that I didn't get some good out of it. But I've had some very close calls. <laughs> and you, you have some very close calls, but it's something you can benefit from when the word is preached. Because when the word is preached and the gospel is proclaimed, it's Christ that's speaking to you. And it's going to do one of two things. It's going to loose you or it's going to bind you. It's going to loose your heart to the gospel or it's going to bind you to bondage to sin. Turn to 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24. Here Paul talks about the preaching of the cross and what's the consequences of that preaching. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. He says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
and the preaching, the key of the kingdom, uh, the key of the kingdom of heaven, the preaching of the, the word of God is going to have, a, it's going to have a consequence. It's going to accomplish something. And either it's going to be the foolishness or it's going to be the power of God unto salvation. The canons of Dort talk about uh, the, the, the promise of the gospel. It says it's, it's the promise of the gospel that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish but have eternal life. This promise, <clears throat> together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be announced and declared without differentiation or discrimination to all nations and people to whom God in his good pleasure sends the gospel. Uh, Kevin DeYoung <clears throat> made the comment, preachers must never allow their pulpit ministry to devolve into nothing but helpful tips, good advice, and moral exhortation. We are charged with the more solemn task to open the gates of heaven and call sinners to believe in Christ and to receive all his promise, gospel promises. Uh, too often in preaching, even in our own day, <clears throat> mild things are said, prosperity is talked about, but perhaps too seldom sinners are told to repent of their sin and turn to Jesus Christ. That's the message of the gospel. And ministers need to be faithful <clears throat> in preaching that gospel, to proclaim the message, to call um, people to the Lord Jesus Christ, to bow the knee, to be humbled before him. That's the key opening the gates of glory for believers because they come through confession of sin and repentance. Uh, turn to, again, thinking of the terms, it's going to have one result or the other. Turn to 2 Corinthians 2, 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16. Talking about ministers of the new covenant. So 2 Timothy 2.15. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death. To the other the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? The gospel will create a response. And it'll either, it'll either be the aroma of life, it will be a, or the stench of death. And even Paul himself is overwhelmed by this. And every minister that stands in the pulpit that's worth the name needs to be overwhelmed by this who is equal to the task? It's an overwhelming task. It boggles my mind when ministers are flippant, say things uh, with, without regard. It's God who is bringing the word to you, and it's a solemn thing. And either it'll be the aroma of life or the stench of death. And the key of the kingdom is to open the gate, to open the door 
to let those who believe and repent come and experience eternal life. But the second key is uh, church discipline. Not often practiced in our own day, but it's an important one. It fits in very well with what the reformers, when they were wrestling through what is a true church, and they were battling with the established church and thinking through what, what is it that makes up a true church, they, uh, they developed three marks of the true church. The first mark is the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the word of God. The second mark is the proper administration of the sacraments. The third mark is the faithful exercise of church discipline. It's a part of what marks out a a true church, a church that's honoring God in the things that it it does. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 will give uh, a discussion to the Corinthians about church discipline as they're working through a particular sinful case. And we'll come back to it in a moment, but Jesus in Matthew 18 also gives direction for how church discipline ought to be carried out. Uh, It's an important part of the church life. There are three goals for church discipline. I can't really weight these one more important than the other because they're all really very, very important. But there are three goals to church discipline. Why in the world would we even do this? Well, one is to promote the purity of the church. That is to push Christians, encourage Christians to living godly lives. Now, no, this church, no church on this earth till Christ comes again will be perfect, will be totally pure. We're all going to wrestle with sin personally and as a church. But part of church discipline is to encourage the people of God to walk in godliness, to pursue purity and um, have that be characteristic of not only our individual lives, but our church life. And it's a challenge, no question. A second goal of church discipline is to reclaim the offender. It's for the benefit of the one who is doing wrong. The goal of church discipline isn't to get rid of the person. We're not trying to get rid of people, but we're trying to rescue people. And it's a very significant goal of church discipline to help the person reach repentance and restoration. We want that. That's a a very significant goal. A third significant goal of church discipline is the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the king and head of the church. This is his body. How we care for the body of the Lord uh, is so significant to the honor of Christ. And whenever people misuse the church, I want to ask them, how would you feel about someone treating your bride that way? Well, they wouldn't want it at all. They'd be terribly offended. And so we want to vindicate the honor of Christ. The church is his bride. The church is his body. We want to honor him in the way we conduct ourselves with one another. 
Now, uh, just some bit of information before we get to Matthew 18. Our church in particular is governed by a certain set of standards. The highest standard is the scriptures, the word of God. That's our chief standard. A secondary standard is the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms. And then a third level of standards is our book of church order, our form of government, which governs the way we conduct things. And just to give an impression of the uh, level and seriousness of those three, when you look at the scriptures, they are not ever to be changed. You can't change the Bible. You receive the Bible. You accept the Bible. It's God's word. So it's unchanging. The confessions are secondary standards. They can be changed. It's very, very hard because it's a serious standard of faith and life, but it can be changed. There is a method to do that. Our form of government as a third level is changed regularly. Not flippantly, but regularly, because sometimes policies that were there years ago don't really apply in our own situation, so we um, need to make a change. But there, in our form of government, there are five levels of discipline. The first level is admonition. That is, that's simply the instruction, the encouragement, the um, speaking to someone. Well, you know, you're not kind of living up to what you need to live up to here. You need to correct this. So it's it's the, the least level. The next level up is rebuke. That's where it's more formal and official, um, a stronger telling someone they need to change their way of life in a particular area. The third uh, level is suspension, that is being suspended from the sacraments, not excommunication yet, but su- suspension from the sacraments or in the case of an elder or deacon, suspended from office for a period of time is so that they can focus on getting correct in that area of life where they're walking astray. The uh, fourth level is only applies really to those that are officers. It's deposition. Uh, what that means is being deposed or taken out of office. And then the fifth is excommunication, where they're barred from the sacraments of the church. But turn to Matthew 18, and we'll see how Jesus laid it out for us in Matthew 18. <clears throat> Our form of government follows this, really. It just adds the element about an officer. But in Matthew 18, verse 15, we have Jesus' explanation of this kind of oversight. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan 
or a tax collector. And then then the repetition of, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so there's, it begins with that private admonition, that encouragement, brother or sister, you need to change in this area of life. But you do it privately. Even if it's a public offense, you do it privately. You go to them individually, try to talk to them. If they won't listen to you, then you take someone with you uh, to go with you. Maybe the weight of two people going to talk to someone will be convincing and lay some significance on it. Maybe they can be reclaimed and restored. If they won't listen to the two or three of you, then you uh, take them to the church, which in most cases is the elders of the church. That's really where it would go. And perhaps the weight of meeting with the elders can uh, have some significance. Maybe that would be convincing to get them to take stock of where they are and what they, what they need to do. Uh, and if they won't listen to them, then you excommunicate them. You put them out of the church. It's a serious business. It's important business. And it's not a flippant thing. It's not for light offenses. This is serious um, issues that are coming up. But the goal is always to reclaim the offender. Sadly, it doesn't always happen. But when it does, that is a joyous, joyous thing. Turn to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2 again. 2 Corinthians 2, just to give you a sense of where all this was to really head. Discipline sounds kind of ominous, and in a sense it is, but what we see here is the goal. Paul had rebuked the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5 that they weren't disciplining this man who was uh, living in a, a, a terrible immorality, but now he's repented. And they don't seem to be ready to, to, to welcome him back and, and uh, embrace him with open arms. And so now Paul has to rebuke him again and say, now get busy with forgiving him. And so that's what we see in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 6. It says, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. But if you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us for we are not unaware of his schemes. Satan would on the one hand tell us, well, don't bother with any of these sins, just let them go. And Paul would say, no, you need to deal with it. But then on the other hand, when someone, then on the other side, when someone repents, he'd say, no, nah, you don't want to repeat that person. He was a sinner. You're right, and so am I. I need to embrace and love the brother or the sister. 
And that's what he has to get on him in 2 Corinthians. He's repented. Forgive him. Love him. Welcome him back into your midst. That's the goal. That's what we want to see. Our aim isn't to get rid of people. Our our aim is to rescue people. And we rescue people through the two keys, the key of preaching and the key of discipline. And it's God's calling for us to use those means that God has given to us for the glory of his name and the furtherance of his kingdom. We want to open the door wide so as many can walk through that door as possible to Christ. Uh, We want them to be drawn to Jesus Christ. But then when there's those things we need to deal with, we want to deal with them so that we can rescue someone from walking a path that they shouldn't be on. This is our calling, particularly for those in office, but this is our calling as a church to open the gates wide so that many might come in and to deal with those who are walking away and rescue them and bring them back. May you and I live in this way and honor God in our lives. We pray. Let's, let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for the, the means and the tools that you have given to your church to extend the gospel of the kingdom, to open the doors of the kingdom wide so that many might come to know Christ and, and be drawn to love him and be released from the bondage of their sin and find forgiveness in Christ. And we do desire, too, that if any are walking in a way they shouldn't, that perhaps you might use us to uh, rescue them and draw them back to a new, fresh love for Christ and to honor him. May you help us as a church, as leaders of the church, honor and glorify you in this way. In Jesus' name. Amen.